everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail! <laughs> hey, over there! Loud mail, evidently. <laughs> My name is William Bibiani, I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold, I too am a critic. Uh, and happy Thanksgiving, William. Yeah, if you are uh, if you observe, if you're uh, in the U.S. or you just mm. really like Thanksgiving, um, happy Thanksgiving, hope you had a good one. Um, great, great time for families to gather and yeah. overeat, and and that's kind of it now. Yeah, it's basically an excuse for a really long weekend, yeah. um, which we which we took. Mm-hmm. Um, we took a few days off. Yeah, so, we're, uh, we're a couple a couple of podcasts short this week, uh, but we wanted to make sure we put in a mailbag episode because we love y'all, and some of mm-hmm. our Patreon episodes are going up. So head on over to patreoncom acclaimed network for that. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is our mail show. This is your show, and we it's a, it's a show we hate to like. If we're not going to do a show, you, if we're yeah. going to do a show, we don't want this to be the show. This is your show. So mm. here's how this here's how the show works. You you send us a letter and we answer it. Pretty much, and that's, that's how it, it works. <laughs> uh, you send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, or you can send us uh, something in an actual mailbox. Whitney, what is our PO box? Uh, yeah, send a, an actual mail envelope. They're called Ooh. a mailbox. It's a little, but it goes inside the mon- It goes true. inside our mailbox. We it have goes a mailbox. Our mail. We have a PO box, a post office box. Uh, write it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, PO Box six four one five six five, Los Angeles, California nine double zero six four. And uh, we don't like to dilly dally because this is again your show. So Whitney, why don't you just uh, just just hop on in there? Sure, hop I'll just in there, read, jump, a, jump read, on a, into this read an email. Hot tub of letters. Uh, this is a letter from Lauren R. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Um, dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, let's get let's just get to the point. Uh oh. Okay. I didn't like Halloween Kills. Okay. Sorry, Bibbs. I was totally on Whitney's side for that review. Good ideas. Big fucking mess. I can well, live with that. Uh, while I'm under 30, Halloween is one of those uh, series that I treat the same vein that someone might treat Star Trek or Lord of the Rings. I watched Halloween at a very influential age, and I've come to know and care way too much about it and could bore someone to tears with my opinions and trivial knowledge about the series as a whole. Rather getting into the weeds, uh, one of the issues I had with Halloween Kills was the reliance on references not only to the original film, but to the sequels, which do not exist in this continuity. <laughs> And this in turn factors into a bigger issue with movie franchises as of late, with Star Wars arguably one of the worst offenders, the pandering of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we come up on a new Ghostbusters, uh, it came out by the time we got to uh, read this letter, mm-hmm. uh, this is bringing up once again the moaning and groaning on both sides because online film discourse only deals in absolutes and it's exhausting. For me personally, I feel like an overabundance of references can weaken the quality of a movie because not only does it take me out of the film, it tells me that the filmmakers really aren't trusting the audience to enjoy a different and new approach to the material. But what I'm curious about at this point is the knee-jerk reactions either to immediately dismiss or encourage nostalgia pandering and how often it is rife and condescending to the other side. If nostalgia is the only thing motivating the plot, then is it a movie worth celebrating? I understand wanting to support filmmakers in general, but at what point do we allow ourselves to concede to fatigue and exhaustion with franchises that we love? I could give a damn about seeing another Star Wars movie, and I was evil dies tonighted to death out of caring what is going to happen in the next Halloween film, but I will watch it because that's the horse and wagon I got on when I was 12 and I'm stuck with it. <laughs> Look, they're, they're all like 90 minutes long. It's uh, yeah. like, you might as well at that point. I, what else is on TV? I'm the sucker for hitching his wagon to Star Trek because there's so much of it now yeah. and so much of it is bad yeah. and yet I'm still, like, that's the one I still kind of feel obligated mm-hmm. to keep following. It's like, well, I need to f- I don't know if there's anything going on. There's nothing I feel obligated to keep following Following, mm. But I watch so much bad shit anyway. It's like, well, I might as well watch the next yeah. entry in this bad horror franchise. I've seen the rest of them. Yeah. I have like, to review them anyway. I've, I, seen, I've sure. seen the I've seen the other two Thanksgiving movies. Why oh, not? Oh. Oh. 
because I've seen Thanks Killing. I've only I've, seen the first Thanks Killing, and it was not, rough going. Yeah, it's really, really bad. And I did not see the sequel, Thanks Killing Three. There's no Thanks Killing Two. That's the joke. That you know what? I think that that's a good joke. It's an okay joke. I'll, I'll give them that. It's not a ha ha joke. So it's many a thing. It's a so many joke. sequels get lost in sort of the vast yeah. jumble of sequels. It's okay that it, they pretended like they lost one. Mm. Anyway, anyway uh, back to Larry. Lauren says. So is there a point for us as film fans to let our beloved franchises go? Lauren R. We've been talking about this a lot we- recently. I feel like we're. We're at a reckoning with a lot of popular culture right now. I think what's happened is there's a lot of people... um, So much of the media and advertising and discourse around those two things are catered at a certain demographic, an age demographic Mm -hmm. of fans. People in their teens, 20s, maybe early 30s, but that's generally the vibe where Uh, these movies are trying to sort of congeal around. And I've, I've said before, 11 to 17 is kind of like... The, the prime spot. I, I think that's expanded to the 20s, but regardless, right. there reaches a point where you have been avidly consuming the same thing over and over and over again, and it before you realize it, it's been decades. Mm. And you can hit critical mass on that. It's only reasonable. It's it's People act like it's unreasonable to say, like, oh, I'm going to give up on Star Wars. It's fine. There's, you don't have to do that. You yeah. can always come back if you want. It's going to be here. There's plenty well, the, around. There's like, the uh, there's that thing where uh, if, if you are really vocal about your fandom and you mm-hmm. buy and you know there's... You might have to eat a little crow if you give it up. There's, but like, yeah, there, there's a, when it comes to being a fan of something mm-hmm. and I know there's been a recent push to redefine fan as being just liking something but that's not what a fan is. That's just liking something. Yeah, fan is short uh, for fanatic. Fanatic. So in order to yeah. uh, be a fanatic, you have to kind of be a little bit demonstrative about that, don't mm-hmm. you? You have to bring it up a lot, perhaps. At least on a shirt. Uh, yeah, but you, you have to <laughs> This buy... sounds like gatekeeping. We're just, we're not, no, we don't I'm, mean I'm, that I'm, at all. I'm, but I'm, just, like... I'm not trying to gatekeep or say like who's a true fan and who isn't, but I am mm. saying there is a distinction between someone who just enjoys something casually mm. versus somebody who devotes a, a portion of their life to it. Mm-hmm. And I know a big por- part of that is expressing yourself, whether it's an online forum or mm-hmm. meeting other people or going to a convention. Uh, there's always a financial aspect to it. You have to mm-hmm. buy something. You have to sort of buy a t-shirt or buy a, a knickknack or mm-hmm. you know, e- even if you're just buying or, the video or, itself. Or just buying the tickets yeah, for the video or game the or tickets. whatever the hell like, it yeah, is. There, yeah. There's, there's going to be some sort of financial transaction mm-hmm. to fandom. It's the world in which we live. Uh, unless you're only a fan of, unless what you're a fan of is the public domain. Well, I mean, you, you could be a you could be a Sherlock Holmes nerd, yeah. but uh, you know, if you're keeping up with the new stuff, you have to pay for it. But I'm yeah, talking about exclusively go. public domain. Like, ooh, I'd like if if you're a public domain nerd, I want to meet you. Yeah, uh, yeah, call. Like, I'm I'm a big. Uh, who, who's Go in the on. public domain right now besides Sherlock Holmes? Dracula uh, fan. Yeah, I'm a big they, Modesty Blaze fan. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm a good big Horatio Hornblower fan. Um, so, uh, yeah, it can, it can get really, really exhausting from uh, just how um, how performative you need to be to, to, to keep up with that. It's not... Now, When if you're a fan and you're sort of like gathering the videos around yourself and you're... Uh, writing essays and exploring art and uh, delving into film theory and using fandom as sort of the the structure on which you build a greater appreciation for other arts or Mm. use it as a way to develop the vocabulary of criticism so you can apply it to well, other arts that you encounter. At that point, you're That's a fan kind of, of criticism. I think it's all Well, at, at, at that point, you're you're just sort of growing in your ability to engage in discourse. Right. I feel like what we're talking about here with this, with this email, though, specifically, mm. because you're right, we have talked about, a lot of people have been emailing us, and it feels like a lot of people 
want to know if if it's okay to just give up. Yeah, and, uh, it, and it is. Guess, it totally is. If you're looking for permission, you have our permission. Yeah, regardless of whether whoever you're listening, <laughs> you don't need our listening. permission, but you no. have it. So, but I feel like there's a lot of peer pressure when it comes to this is what we talk about. This mm. is what we're into. And if you leave, what are you going? What are you going to talk about with yeah, these people? Yeah, yeah. So, I get that. But specifically, this email is I think is talking about how nostalgia and the way that ongoing franchises try to capitalize on and end up wallowing in nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Accelerates our willingness to drop it, yeah. Because after a while, like, yeah, I like the old thing. I don't need new things to remind me of it. Those things are readily available. Mm. It's it's not like I can't get John Carpenter's Halloween on home video. Like I can well, I can get that at any time. So I don't need you to remind me of that constantly in your new movie. It's more exciting to move on. The occasional reference to what came before can sometimes just make perfect sense plot-wise because it takes place in a continuity of some sort. Halloween is weird in that regard, but each of them takes place in some kind of continuity. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, what we're seeing a lot of is this idea that by pandering to nostalgia, specifically pandering, and filling your movie with endless references to things that you knew before. Mm. So you can go, hey! Snap your finger and point and say, I, yeah. I under- that's something I know. Yeah, or the the Captain America line from Avengers. I understood that reference. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and that really is a lot of Ghostbusters Afterlife. Like, a surprising mm. amount of, of Ghostbusters Afterlife. That's, that's very easily going to hit a critical mass of, at that point, you're really not doing anything new. And I think mm. that's true for Ghostbusters Afterlife. A movie I don't dislike watching... But I think adds nothing new to it. No, it's just it's, it's just hey, remember it, this? Yes, you got these new actors. Yeah, they're gonna do anything new? Old stuff. Oh, one. Well, it, it's it's not just that they're repeating it. It's that they are. It, it's lazy storytelling because they're trying to grandfather in your affection for the previous thing. Mm-hmm. It's not just that you recognize it. It's that you're going to feel a certain way about it. Yeah. Uh, what if you saw the original Ghostbusters and you don't like that movie or you don't have a deep affection for that movie? All of yeah. these references are things you might recognize. Yeah. But I you're not like going to be really moved by the I, appearance of some of those things at the end. I feel like what they're trying to do is for people who are less familiar with Ghostbusters, maybe the young people in the audience who are going because of the young cast, for mm-hmm. example, or being dragged by their parents, just as likely. Um, they're trying to v- use that nostalgia to vaunt, mm-hmm. to idolize previous entries in the franchise so that young people will start consuming the old stuff and revere it the way that their parents want them to. And that's why I find Afterlife especially cynical. It serves as a commercial for the thing that came before it. I don't think Halloween kills is specifically doing that, but it is a weird scenario, and you're 100% right about this. The two David Gordon Green Halloween movies, the first one less so than the second, take a lot of their cues from the movies that they allegedly wanted to avoid. Mm-hmm. And even up until, like, the end of the last one, I mean, I would not be shocked if the next one it just goes full-blown supernatural at this point. Like, because, yeah. like, they, they leave that as, like, part of, like... And this leads me to my weird fan theory about this Halloween <laughs> movie, which I'll say again. Go for it. I... My headcanon for this is the reason why this is so similar to the way a lot of other Halloween sequels worked out is because there is one root chronology in Halloween, and then at some point the Cult of Thorn went back in time and splintered it 
into multiple, multiple realities. <laughs> so it's like a Star Trek 2009 scenario. Yeah, like it, it was bound to go kind of the same way, which is why Rob Zombie's, at least Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, kind of follows the plot of like Halloween 4, 5, and 6 a little bit. Yeah. And then we see David Gordon Green's first Halloween, which is basically Halloween H2O. Mm-hmm. And then we see Halloween Kills, which has a lot of elements from Halloween 2. Well, Halloween 4, Halloween especially. Halloween 4, yeah. especially. A lot of And I actually like Halloween 4 originally. But regardless, I feel like we want to try to move away, but either we're afraid to or... It's all a conspiracy. It's all this like fatalistic story. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to find out at the I'm end sure it was all is... a twist and there's going to be like three Jamie Lee Curtises. And, and uh, it's like, be three great. Michaels will all fight each other. Yeah. And, uh, sure. They'll just stab each other and none of them will die and they'll just be locked in a room I stabbing to each get, other for I all eternity. Get, there was this thing where it's like, oh, we're going to make, make Halloween better by making it more serious. We, we, we've done that multiple times. It was, make that, it weirder. That, <laughs> That's apart, what I want. Apart from Halloween 3, it was never like a wacky series. And, and, and Halloween 6 was bizarre. Well, 6 is just 6 awful, is fucking but, weird. And, and, and um, um, res, was it Resurrection? That's part 8, yeah. Part 8, the yeah, one, Resurrection. The one with Buster Rhymes. That one's stupid. Uh, that one's pretty stupid, too. Yeah. Uh, he, here's my theory about sort of the, the reason we've gotten, and truly everybody has noticed, this mm-hmm. acceleration of nostalgia-based mm-hmm. sequels and remakes and what have you. Uh, it was especially apparent uh, in the early 2010s when all the horror movies were getting remade. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still continuing. More the late, pay- more the late 2000s. Late really. 2000s. Oh, yeah. yeah. I guess like that's when we started getting Texas Chainsaw. Around there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, there were a lot of these horror remakes going on for a while. It was a big trend. And it was right after I the J-horror um, boom. Yeah. There's, uh, I think this has a lot to do with accessibility to certain home media, right? Yeah. Uh, back before the inception of the VCR, you could only see a film once every couple of years, maybe, mm-hmm. if as it came through your town. So nostalgia would be actual nostalgia, which is, yeah, oh, like, I remember, oh, I, have, I remember I haven't seen that, that a while. I've yeah. seen this movie four times. Wow, yeah. you're insane. Four times? Nobody sees movies four times. Yeah. Uh, home video accelerated that. Yeah. Now you could stay at home and you could watch Star Wars repeatedly all day long. Yeah. And you could attach yourself to certain details. Yeah. And I've said this before, it's like... It's like you're hooked on heroin and you're growing like an immunity to it. Let, let's not say heroin. Let's say caffeine. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's scale that shit okay. back a smidge. You, you, you drink a lot of caffeine, you've built up sort of a resistance to it, right? You, you, yeah. you have to drink more and more to get the same kind of buzz. Uh, after a while, you're drinking all this caffeine. That is, you're watching the original Star Wars over and over again and you're feeling nothing. So you need the same drink cut with something new. You need like yeah. to... to sw- co- now you need espresso. You need a stronger yeah. coffee. So it's yeah. still coffee... But it's so it's the same flavor, but it's just more powerful. And yeah, that's yeah. what a remake does. It gives mm-hmm. you the same buzz in a new package. I can see that. Uh, and I think with with streaming and online discourse now, that's accelerated even further yeah. because we're not just rewatching the movies. Now we're discussing and dissecting that's, every detail I, more and more. And, and more, that's the other thing to I the think point is where everything falls apart really fast and we need to go real hard to get that high again. It's important to remember also that this whole nostalgia thing, the whole like revisiting popular movies of yore and just sort of repackaging them or doing them as a TV series now, uh, that goes back over half a century. Mm. Hollywood had been doing that since the silent era. Hollywood was doing that in the sound era. Once TV started coming along, we started getting TV series based on popular movies, popular movie stars and mm. things. And, oh, and we, even in the, the yeah. era of radio, there's yeah. like radio, there's a series version of The Third Man. Of course there is. The, the Adventures of Harry Lyme. Yeah, it, which is weird. He was, the, well, so you the, find the, it, yeah. he was the fucking villain in the first one. What the hell? He, but like, he, he turns into kind of a hero in the I show. Know, it's super weird. But like, my point is that they do this constantly, mm. but it's accelerated now. It's... um. 
Do you ever see if you ever see the movie Mimic? There's a good explanation of the movie Mimic. Hmm. Uh, Mimic is a story about uh, there's a disease uh, spread by. Uh, um, uh, cockroaches. Well, cockroaches. It's made by cockroaches in New York City, and it's killing all the, all the ch- all the children in New York City. And so, what they do is they come up with a new breed of cockroach that eats all those other cockroaches. Mm-hmm. Great problem solved. It works. Ten years later, cockroaches breed fast, and so we are thousands upon thousands of generations from the that mutant strain being and, released and in the sewers and they con- they adapt a lot faster than yeah. regular cockroaches and now they're the size of human beings <laughs> and the thing is is that it's not 10 years it's thousands of generations mm. that's what you got to focus on not the amount of time but the amount of cycles yeah, so- and pop culture thanks largely to social media thanks in big part to the uh, increased availability of media where people can revisit things constantly we're going through the cycles faster mm-hmm. and faster and faster and the same sort of delivery system or same dosage of nostalgia doesn't hit the same way. Mm-hmm. So. so we need stronger and stronger doses. So or we're weaker. Say, we, or we're yeah. demanding weaker. It's too much for us. Mm-hmm. We want to quit. And so we do. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, I, I, what you're saying is pop culture is a mutant cockroach. Yes, I am. <laughs> I, I chose that. Yeah. That's not a joke. That is, no, yes. that, that, that's, that's completely apt yeah. that the, the cycles go faster and faster and faster. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's too much to keep up with. Yes, it is. And we don't want to, Eat the same regurgitation every time. No, we want something. We want something new once in a while, and then we want to rip, you know, copies of that for a while. <laughs> Let's go into another letter. Let's do it. All right, uh, here's a letter from Doctor Nova. Hello, Doctor Nova. Hey, Doctor Nova. Uh, dear Bims and Whitney, I love books. As such, the possibility of reading everything is impossible. Yep, that's true. Uh, so here's my advice for film fans. There's this thing called mood reading which is just following what you're in the mood for rather than the movie or book you have to see or read because it's either a classic or Marvel. (laughs) (laughs) Also, if there's something you want to not watch, don't. Hmm. For example, I will never watch Brokeback Mountain. Okay. Because when boring people found out I'm queer uh, and a film fan, they said, oh, have you seen Brokeback Mountain? So no, <laughs> I will never see it. Fuck those people. <laughs> Dr. Nova. You know, I, you know, I, I think that's legit. That's I mean, fine. If people are, if people, uh, if the movie reminds you of something annoying, mm-hmm. yeah, you never have to see that thing. You might choose one day to see it and maybe you'll like it, but you also could go your whole life without seeing it and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about this for a few episodes now. People have written in about, you know, they're young and they're just starting getting started, you know, catching up on classic cinema, cult cinema, whatever they're into. But there's over 100 years of film history to catch up on. Mm-hmm. And it's daunting. And you don't know where to start. And you don't know, um, you, you know, get, how you can possibly fit it all in. Because you, you get you're eager. pretty fast. Because right? you're eager and you want to. And that's great. That's wonderful that you're so passionate about it that you want to, like, see all these allegedly classic movies and every film from your favorite filmmakers and discover new things. And that's great. You'll get to it. If you want to, you'll get to it. You don't need to stress yourself out. If you want to come up with a plan, I'm going to see every David Lynch movie in the next, excuse me, next uh, six months. Mm-hmm. You can do that. But you also can just follow your bliss and yeah, just yeah. go right ahead and do that. That's totally fine. Um, and I encouraged that because uh, yeah. I, I wanted, uh, I'm not sure if I was very articulate about it, but I wanted everybody's sort of like personal stock of movies, the list of things they've seen. Mm-hmm. I wanted every list to be different. I want everybody to yeah. sort of explore their own interests in a way, sure. because uh, if, if you're exploring something, it's likely you might find something that nobody else has seen. Right. It becomes A, special to you, and B, something you get to share. But I think and it's something you get to champion, which I think is a big part of what we do as critics. I think that I, I agree to that to a point. I think if you're going to be a professional critic, 
you do have some responsibility well, to go through some of them. I was, some, I was talking I'm, about just I'm, personally. And I, and I am I'm making a distinction between the two. Okay. Yeah, I think fair, if you fair. really want to do this professionally or if you decide or if you want to teach or whatever, if you're just super duper passionate about it and you want to go that next extra step, then yes, you have a certain responsibility. You might never get to all of them, but to start working your way through the uh, the building blocks mm. of cinema. Uh, there are certain films which are incredibly influential, incredibly important, incredibly referenced. Uh, certain filmmakers you should be at least somewhat familiar with. There's that to it. Not everyone has that responsibility. You don't have to do that if you don't want to. But if you do, you should. Otherwise, you end up with a list of the 100 greatest films of all time from Empire. Oh, God. And <laughs> only 12 of them are from before the 1970s. Yeah, that, that's just... Oh my God! Did you see this thing? We, yes, I did. Um, Empire Magazine put out a list of the 100 greatest films of all time. Yes, that, just, that was the, the title. The one—it was just the 100 greatest films. Period. Yeah, uh, and yeah, not qualified by. And this, these were our criteria. No, this was according to the Empire staff or whoever uh, wrote uh, this list. Uh, and they also uh, listened to their to their readers or listeners. Oh, they which pulled, is okay. which is important, I think here. Yeah, because so we're going to end uh, up with. The films that a lot of people grew up with mm-hmm. or saw because they're mainstream, and you're not going to end up with films like, really? that were selected by people who actually know all there is to know about mm-hmm. it, or at least as much as they can. So it, the the original, uh, the number one film on that list, which I was embarrassed to have guessed, yeah, uh, was Lord of the Rings. Yeah, the the first of the Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, that is uh, the Peter Jackson film, not the animated film. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't it have been keen if it were the, the Ralph Bakshi film? See, that would have been that would yeah. have been a twist. That would have been a great twist. Um, <laughs> but, reading, uh, yeah, but yeah, I was going through this list, and it's it's a lot of the the. Mm, I'll just say it's a certain type of film. It's a certain yeah. type of film that is highly celebrated, mm-hmm. widely known, and appeals to broadly speaking uh, a, y- a young white male audience. Yeah, there's a lot of action movies, not mm. a lot of comedies, not a lot of straight dramas, uh, and again, most of them, most of them. Films you could watch as a teen, uh, yeah. The 20, I, I think I counted, I think about 25 of the films on the 100 film list, 25% mm. of the list, was from the 2000s, from the last, yeah, from the last like, uh, uh, 20 years. Now, I personally feel that when we do these greatest movies of all time lists, that we, we should update them. Yeah. I think we should update them, yeah. and I think I think we we don't cycle new movies into that 100 greatest of all time canon mm-hmm. often enough. And I think there's certainly at least ten or twelve films from 2000 onward, mm-hmm. bare minimum, that you can make a good argument yeah, deserve to be on a list of the greatest films of yeah, all time. I, I remember um, when the 2012 Sight and Sound poll. Next one's coming out next year. By oh the way. God, we haven't been invited yet. Not yet. But, uh, <laughs> Figure Who stuff. knows somebody? Who knows someone in sight and sound? For well, the love I'm, of God. I'm in my 40s now. Maybe in my 50s. Uh, ah. But uh, at the 2012 poll, there, they had an issue with that. That a lot of the films that were on the list were all incredibly old. And the, the number of films from the previous decade was very, very small. Yeah. So they actually had to run a second poll that a lot of people did uh, participate in mm-hmm. of what were the best films of the last decade. Yeah. And I appreciate that if they're relatively recent and you might feel it's too early to canonize them because have they withstood what we might yeah, call the test of time. Sit with them for a little bit. That's fair. Uh-huh. But I also believe that if you're watching movies avidly and if you can't think of at least a couple of movies that came out in the last 10 years that you were so passionate about that you think they deserve to be considered at least in the top 100. Mm-hmm. I worry about the state of cinema if that's the case, but I can think of at least a few. 
Yeah. You know, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, A Separation... Uh, the, get, the get, lighthouse, the, the white, the white ribbon. Sure, uh, there's, sure. There's, there's, there's a lot your of picks, really not mine, but yeah, perfectly reasonable picks. Yeah. Um, there's no shortage. But what we saw instead was this weird thing on that list. And again, it's someone else's list. It's all subjective. But we're also allowed to have a subjective opinion about the list and throw up a little in our mouths when we read it. So when I saw that like Citizen Kane was on it, I was like, oh, I actually wasn't expecting this. Yeah. And it's at number forty or forty-one. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, that's a little low. What comes after Citizen Kane? The next one, Gladiator. Oh, God. Right after Citizen Kane. And I'm like, again, I don't want to be too snobbish uh, about this, but I think Citizen Kane is a more interesting film than Gladiator, and I happen to like Gladiator just fine. Uh I wouldn't put it in my top 1,000 movies, (laughs) but I like it fine. It's a good uh, film for what it is. I will be snobbish about Gladiator, because I don't like Gladiator, not not one bit, and uh, so... That so this, clearly this is this is the list we're dealing with. Where mm-hmm. Gladiator is slightly better than Citizen Kane. Uh-huh. This is the world we live in. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, no silent movies. Yeah, no, nothing not from this. Nothing from the 30s. Only I think two movies from the 40s. Citizen. No, it was uh, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, and It's a Wonderful Life. That's it. No, the best yeah. years of our lives. Uh-huh. No, 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 nothing no, from the '30s. No, no quite on the Western Front. No, 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 no Frankenstein. Yeah, no Metropolis. The, no, the General. And and no, the Great Train Robbery. No these are, trip to the Moon. Th- these are things that you know. The, these titles you're just sort of rattling off. These are like obvious things. These yeah, are these things are that any, anybody who's just interested in movies kind of knows about, or at least has heard about yeah, them. Yeah. If you've done like a little research in the mm-hmm. Salon era, you know, like if you've seen a documentary about yeah, Salon. So, era, and, and I think a lot of that stems from from fandom. Sure. So, and but, again, but there's, anyway, there's a lot of recency a, bias as well, uh, and I get that. But yeah, so in conclusion, meh, don't don't go to certainly don't go to that top ten, top one hundred <laughs> list when you're trying to fill in that that fear that I would sense of FOMO it. that you're you're clearly because getting when you're trying that, to consume everything. That type of list does not exist to raise your awareness of the greatest movies ever made. That type of list exists to make you feel better for not having watched a lot of films. I want you to feel okay for not having watched a lot of films. You've seen whatever you've seen at this point. If you want to watch a lot more, you will. If you don't, you won't, and that's fine too. All right. Uh, I bring that list up because I'm still mad about it, but it's, it's fine. It's not my business. It's it's totally fine. Mm. I I should move on. But anyway, thank you for writing, and we should move on. We're we're very <laughs> loquacious today. Oh, it's fine. It's uh, okay. you know what this this is. I do like getting uh, to more letters though. Yeah, this is a, a a shorter week, so we can be loquacious in this okay. particular podcast. Here's a letter from David Ellis. Hello, David. Hey, um, dear Captain Seibold and Commander Bibiani. Mm. Uh, I I'll thank you. Um, <laughs> I am a fan of your podcast network. Thank your you. shows are great. Apologies in advance for the length of this email. Oh. Shaw. Never, never apologize. Um, You're fine. I'm listening to the most. Re- this is about Prodigy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I'm listening to the most recent. We've got mail, and I found I disagreed strongly with the letter uh, of of the writer who ranted about Star Trek Prodigy. Although I did like his, like his designations for the two of you. Anyway, I don't think the show is talking down to kids at all. Uh, it seems to be in a similar vein to a show like Avatar: The Last Airbender, which shows children being children, but also growing up and grappling with the fact that they're basically collateral damage in adults' conflicts. The main characters, as stated in the WGM episode, are char- children raised in slavery, which is al- already a heady subject, even if the sh- that the series isn't sugarcoating. 
Excuse me, stumbling a little bit. Okay. Um, the further the series gets away from the premiere episode, the more it shows that the young ch- child characters are heavily traumatized in ways that are only st- are only starting to grapple with. Small touches like rock talk, only replicating food she ate in the mines because she's not used to what anything tastes like, or more overt ones like her railing against Gwyn for not doing anything to stop the way they were treated. It's an action show, sure, but there's uh, also showing traumatized young people discovering what freedom is like for the first time. And that freedom is represented in the Protostar and the Federation, although they still have a lot to learn as well as a lot to unlearn. Mm. Regarding the choice to focus almost entirely on a non-Federation cast of children, I think that's interesting. Sure, they can rely on kids getting into shows that their parents watch, and that's fine, but it's also a franchise that has, for the most part, been actively hostile to child characters or just flat-out didn't know what to do with them. True. I got that sense, even as a kid, getting into the next generation. Even... uh, even as they had a teenager on the Enterprise who was involved in brainstorming and the solving of some problems, I always got the sense that he was on the ship, uh, the, the sense that he was on the ship and didn't want to or need to be there. I got It got better on Deep Space Nine with Nog and Jake, admittedly, but the problem remained that the writers didn't seem to know how to write children. Aspiring to be adult characters is one thing, but watching episodes of TNG and watching Have the Writers Ever Met Any Children My Age Ever <laughs> was still off-putting. Hmm. Also, there's the interesting question of what does the Star Trek concept look like to someone who's seeing it for the first time? Sadly, the Star Trek series has been historically poor about what life in the Trek universe looks like to people who aren't on a starship. True. Usually when we see Earth in Star Trek, it's a different time period or simulation. One look... uh, one might look at the way uh, the Federation civilians are dressed and gives the, give them the impression that the costume designers have no idea how someone lives in the 24th century. Some of the civilian clothes on Deep Space Nine are just pretty bad. ugly. Yeah. The most extended look at day-to-day Federation society might actually be the recent Star Trek Picard series. So here's a chance to show what Federation space looks like from an outsider's point of view. And finally, regarding to the ongoing comparisons to Star Wars in Prodigy, I think that's mostly a result of being a CGI sci-fi show in a landscape that has been dominated by CGI Star Wars shows for over a decade now. Prodigy using uh, the style of character design that favors alien body types over gluing prosthetics to human actors. So of course it's going to look more like Star Wars. And most of what we think the Star Trek aesthetic is, is just Starfleet. So uh, starting outside that aesthetic and moving towards Starfleet is going to invoke some comparisons. I do think the Protostar looks like an amazing sleek Federation ship. The Protostar is a cool looking show. Look okay. up a picture of the Protostar. I will do that just now. The USS Protostar. And, uh, and a great way to introduce that aesthetic to an outsider's point of view. Hopefully the series continues long enough and the main characters will no longer be outsiders to the Federation. Sincerely, David L.S. Well, I'll say this right now. <coughs> I, again, I haven't Excuse watched me. this one yet. Mm. But I do think it's two things are fair to say about mm. the email that we just read. Uh, one, it's always exciting when people see something in a show that we don't like that is genuinely like inspiring and interesting and gets mm. them excited about it. Yeah. So that's good, and maybe one or both of us will come around to that. Uh, but um, the other thing is, um, I actually do agree that like we've never really had stories about kids in Star Trek. And not, like, not, re- not many good ones, that's for sure. That's true. Well, certainly not with any sort of regularity, except for, you know, the mm. semi, you know, Wesley and the, the kids on Deep Space Nine, but they were never really about them. They were always side quests. Mm. Um, wanting to see different angles of Star Trek is a good idea. The one danger of that is that Star Trek does have a clear Starfleet identity. Mm-hmm. Star Trek isn't just the stories of this universe, Star Trek is the stories of Starfleet in this universe. And the further you move away from that, the less you're going to have that grounding of the sort of principles of Star Trek, which Federation is supposed to represent. So that mm. could be dangerous if you go too far in that direction. 
but I can only say so that academically. Get... I'm looking at the Protostar now. It looks fine. Yeah. Um. The uh the body of the ship opens up. It's actually like a huh. third engine, and it can go faster than any other ship. That's 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 sort of fun. that's the twist with the Protostar. I can work. I can work with that. Um. I think the reason why Star Trek has struggled with uh, child characters is because it's a show that uh, vaunts maority as a virtue. Yeah. It's about being cool-headed and collected and it's about being experienced. Professional. Yeah, about and those are about having a job. And the, yeah, it's a, it's a very vocational. It's it's a very yeah. adult world that Star Trek takes yeah. place in. And kids just don't have a place in that world unless there's someone like Wesley mm-hmm. who aspires to be part of it and is just too young to enter yet. So they so they engineered a, a concept here mm. where these kids end up taking over a Starfleet vessel. Yes. Done. Right? Well, I mean, at least on paper, a, that sounds like a good idea. The, the sh- they have access to it, but... Uh, they they don't know kind of what it is, and they're sort of grappling with the idea of using it responsibly. Yeah. Now they have access to this ship; they can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But uh, a they're not exploring; they're not getting far as far away as they possibly can. They're, the bad guys are still on their tail, mm. uh, and so far, like the, the mom figure, who is actually Captain Janeway in hologram form, mm-hmm. is the one who's guiding them. Right. It's like trying to make sure they they do the mature thing, and I like those little elements, but. Mm-hmm. It hasn't hasn't grown on me yet. It has the these yeah. characters are they look I don't like the design of the characters. Yeah. Not that they look too weird for Star Trek. I think it's fine that they're going way out of their way. In fact, um one of the uh, characters is a Medusin, hmm. uh, who we saw as in there in Truth No Beauty. Oh. Uh, the, the the species that was like in a box yeah, 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 yeah. like they're t- incomprehensible for the human That's mind. Cool. They're like bound up in a ball and they have a little speaker and like tentacles so they can like walk around and interact. That's really with cool. Stuff. Yeah, so that's okay. that's a and sure, continuity that's too, that's fun. It's in continuity, yeah. it's a fine idea. Yeah, yeah. Um I don't I'm doesn't necessarily have to be a ball. Uh, this is something yeah. they did in Babylon Five as well. One of the characters is in this sort of like human shaped suit. Okay. Um, I forgot that character's name. Mm. It's like I, some, I never saw Babylon Five. It's like an ambassador has like this big camera thing for a yeah. head, and it can take well, guess, the shell off. Well, but regardless, uh, I, I just feel like the other thing. The other thing I wanted to say. But well, hold I'll, on. Let me finish my thought. Finish your thought. Um, I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> uh, you were talking about you, you're okay with the designs. I'm, oh, I'm okay with the designs. I I don't see the Star Trek concept here. It's so far very action-based. And this notion that these are like young, scrappy, uh, trauma-suffering children, mm-hmm. forgive me, that's a dull concept now. Uh, trauma has... I understand why trauma wow. is being openly ex- explored in so much of our pop media right now because the people making it were kids when 9-11 happened in the United well, States. I, and I think a lot of that trauma is... Trauma is not going, unique to 9-11. A lot no, of people traumatized but, their whole damn no, lives. No, but I think that there's a reason why it's concentrated right now. Okay. Uh, and around uh, the certain age of creators who are making it. Mm-hmm. The, it's, it the, these things do echo on one another. And I'm sure. not blaming it all on 9-11, but... Okay. There's a lot of trauma that the millennial generation has gone through, and I think that's what's sort of mm. arising in pop media right now. I also think that... So it's... much so mm. yeah. that it can be a little tiresome after a while. It feels like an easy fallback. Well, I will say this right now. Uh, you're describing the way that a lot of media, not just Star Trek, mm. is starting to deal very directly with trauma. Yeah. Uh, entire generations are starting to deal openly with trauma mm. trauma and generational trauma trauma passed down from one generation to another like within a family for example is a real tangible ongoing psychological problem that we are not 
we've only really just begun to start a talking about in earnest and b destigmatizing mm-hmm. so that we can talk about this instead of just saying oh that's old crazy eddie he went to nam and now he's weird <laughs> yeah. it's like no that guy is actually suffering and the, there's a certain sensitivity to what trauma does to people now mm-hmm. when i think about how in the next generation the character of tasha yar we find out that she's from a planet where Things were really, really terrible. She doesn't really talk about it in great detail, but she does talk about how there were gangs of people who would just wander around and they would be assaulting people Mm. in horrible ways. That's a dystopian thing. That's a dystopian concept. That is not a Star Mm. Trek concept. That's someone who was saved from something horrible. I feel like in if that show were released today with the exact same characters, by the time Tasha Yar left the show, we within season one, we probably would have had at least one episode <laughs> dealing with how horrible that is and how that shaped her as a yeah, character, yeah. you know? Like, we're not really doing that. So, I think being able to talk openly about this is exciting for a generation that is used to media that does not. And mm. if I think it's something that I think I see a lot of and I actually appreciate when it's done well because me not being able to deal with the various traumas that I've gone through has had a really negative impact on my life and I feel like if I had seen it dealt with more openly in the media, I would have felt more like I could have sought help earlier. Hmm. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing in children's program. I think Avatar The Last Airbender did that really well. So I I just think that I just, I appreciate that there's a lot of it right now and that maybe it seems like it's starting to echo hmm. a bit much, but I do overall see that as a good thing. Uh, overall, so that's my counterpoint. Overall, perhaps, but how mu- how long are we exploring this before it loses that sensitivity and it becomes a plot point? That's a danger. Uh, that's a, like that's uh, a danger. Consider, but I'd rather, consider, I'd rather uh, can we explore it first and then let that happen? I, I suppose so. I, I feel <laughs> I'd like rather, I'd, I'd rather have it than not. I, I simply maybe it's because of the the volume of media I consume, but I see it a lot mm-hmm. to the point where I feel like we're at that tipping point where mm-hmm. we need to either deal with it sensitively or maybe. D- don't use it just sort of as this cheap backup yeah, no, to back up I, a low quality product and try to make either. it sound profound. No, I feel the same I way about, done well. um, there's an entire law and order series devoted to sexual assault. There is to the point where a lot of people it, I know who are actually sufferers and victims mm-hmm. find it to be cheap and risible. Yeah. This it's not a sensitive uh, exploration no, it's a of formulaic the people. Yeah, it's re- repetitious. Exactly, thing. it becomes it becomes but, almost but that's one weird. Sh- but that's one show, and again, if we're talking mm-hmm. in cycles, mm-hmm. Law and Order isn't one storyline over all those episodes. It's a new story every single week. Sometimes more than one. Yes. So you're going to uh, get that cycle a lot faster. I, I understand, but uh, the. Uh... And this is coming from from some of my friends. They 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 watched it as sort of a comedy show about yeah. how how they tried to f- like look really sensitive and important when really they were lousing up a lot of the details. Yeah. They weren't dealing with things sensitively. It was only considered sensitive for like people who were casually watching the show or making dinner yeah. while Law and Order people was on. People who never really go out of their no. way to look for material like that. Exactly, yeah. and I feel like that's kind of what's happening with intergenerational trauma right now. It's mm. explored maybe a little bit too deeply. Oh, that's the way I feel, I, and again. Again, this is. I know too many people who refuse to believe it exists. Oh like, well. So I, anyway, well, regardless. Again, this, this I can appreciate. Likely stems from the volume that I consume. That that's, I, I'm yeah. seeing it a lot. Maybe yeah. because and, I'm and, a critic, I'm and, seeing it more often than. And not necessarily every observer. single thing you're watching is doing it well. Mm. Whereas you might actually, yeah, depending on your taste, only mm. be encountering it well. Regardless, I see the attempt to deal with it as better than ignoring it, which is what's mm, been done too yeah. much. But anyway, we should move on because I apologize we're in the for being a little cynical about it. No, no, I get it. You're um, looking at it. You're looking at it from just a sort of a volume mm. rather than quantity versus quality. Yeah, I'm yeah. more concerned that there's quality. 
mm. now finally <laughs> that I'm willing to forgive <laughs> that there's maybe more than I need. No, but you know? my concern is that the yeah. quantity will outstrip the quality at some point. I would rather have it and run that risk than not. <laughs> okay. But let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Mason. Um, hey, Mason. Dear Mr. W. the first and Mr. W. the second. Ah, uh, I've wait, been listening. I'm the second. I'm youngest. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been listening to you guys' stuff since Finding Kensal Too Soon, partway through 2017, and your wit, rapport, and passion for the art of cinema has been a welcome addition to my life ever since. I'm currently in my last year of undergrad, fingers crossed, and Ooh. taking classes for my film and media studies minor that I'm not going to be able to finish on the history of animation and experimental film. Uh, through this class, I got to see the man with a movie camera, the mm. K- the Quay Brothers' Street of Crocodiles, I think it's Neighbors, the K Brothers, isn't it? Okay, Quay. Oh, whatever. Anyway, I think I think yeah. Key Brothers, yeah. uh, Street of Crocodiles, Neighbors, and A Cherry Tale from Norman McLaren and Kenneth Anger's Custom Car Commandos. Nice. I also know the. <laughs> I also know. Also known as the best fucking thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> Custom Car Commandos, all spelled with Ks. Um, A few weeks ago, our professors asked for suggestions for films that addressed contemporary issues facing marginalized peoples. Mm. So I suggested Mary and Max. It's an Australian stop-motion dramedy about a profoundly lonely grade school girl in Melbourne, Mary, who becomes pen pals with a profoundly lonely middle-aged man in New York, Max, and their two-decade correspondence. Halfway through the movie, Max is diagnosed with Asperger's Syndrome, which creates a rift in their friendship when Mary writes a book about the disorder using Max as a case study. It's one of my favorite movies, and getting to watch the two scenes from it in class are the highlights of my semester so far. It's also easily the best portrayal of autism I've seen in any film or TV show, at least in my experience. Max is never the object of pity, nor is his existence used as a device for Mary to learn a valuable lesson about selflessness or some hackneyed cloying bullshit. There's even a moment when uh, he states that curing his autism would be like, I'm trying to change the color of my eyes. Mm. Uh, Being autistic myself, I'm morbidly fascinated with badly written autistic characters. It's as if most people writing this stuff have heard of autism, but don't really understand it. So they write autistic people like these strange fairy folk that sometimes vaguely behave like actual people or as, quote, more evolved versions of humanity, both of which are equally condescending. It doesn't usually offend me, but it's baffling how misguided some of these portrayals are. I'm almost impressed by it. What are some of your guys' favorite and least favorite portrayals of autistic characters? I'll accept both characters who are confirmed in text to be on the spectrum and characters who read to you as such. I hope this message finds you okay. Mm. From your friendly neighborhood, Masshole. Good luck and Godspeed, Mason. Uh, P.S. If you can win on Custom Car Commandos, it would make my day. Uh, Whitney's... I'm trying to remember if I've seen this one. I think you've definitely seen this one, obviously. I I, I saw a collection of Kenneth Anger shorts. Uh, back in my 20s. So Sam. I think that is what I saw, but okay. I, I can't call it It's been a while. To it's been a while, but uh, obviously we're kind of thank your fans. We mm-hmm. did a whole episode about Scorpio Rising. Um, when it comes to artistic representation, I believe it's incredibly important. I also believe that as someone who is not autistic, I should stay in my lane a bit here. Yeah. And yeah, I don't want to, um, I don't want to go. We've talked about representation a lot mm. on this show. A lot of people have written in asking us and our readers for good examples and, and sometimes bad examples mm. of representation in cinema. Uh, and I, because of my lack of personal experience, I've known autistic people. I've known a lot of autistic people, but I still don't feel like I can comfortably say mm-hmm. what is fair and accurate. What I will recommend is a really excellent uh, video essay that actually uh, uh, I, I just watched with my partner in Lapis de Silva uh, from a YouTuber uh, named Jesse Gender. Mm-hmm. G-E-S... Uh, sorry. J-E-S-S-I-E 
G-E-N-D-E-R. Okay. Uh, it's called Sia's Music, The Trap of Symbolic Autistic Representation. Okay. Which is all about the movie that uh, pop star Sia made about a oh, year it's ago. Sia. I heard it was Sia. It's, it's pronounced Sia. I could have sworn I just hmm. heard her on the radio saying, hi, this is Sia. Really? Oh, okay. I could be wrong. Well, regardless, Sia or Sia. The, the, I, I, I don't know uh, pop music. We'll just, uh, I'm however, just going to say right now. However you pronounce her name. It's spelled uh, S-I-A. Her film music was widely mm-hmm. uh, derided for its inaccurate portrayal of autism. Yes, lots of inaccurate portrayal of autism here, but it led to a really fascinating conversation about exactly the way that that film failed to be a proper representation and how certain other films have, including a film that is kind of about Star Trek. So uh, that's a really, really good essay. It's about 45 minutes long. It's on YouTube. It's totally free, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, Sia or Saya's Music, The Trap of Symbolic Autistic Representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great starting point for this. Yeah. Obviously, there's no end. There's no end. But uh, it's a great starting point if you want to like hear some really thoughtful stuff about people who actually really know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. that's a great place to start. Um, I I do know. Um, I mean, I can point to plenty of bad examples. Sure. Uh, finding good examples is the difficult thing. Yeah. Uh, it it always does bother me when uh, a TV show or a film will think to include a character on the spectrum. And I think, oh, good, we're going to have somebody who put a lot of thought and energy into this. Mm-hmm. We're going to explore, uh, we're going to go into Star Trek with a, a, a character on the spectrum mm-hmm. and see what Starfleet looks like to a character on the pers- on the, the spectrum. Yeah. We're going to see it from their perspective. We're going to see how Star Trek uh, mm-hmm. interacts with a character like that. Yeah. And they kind of forget about that immediately. And yeah. uh, you know, the next, uh, you know, there's there's no other indicators that they're yeah. on the spectrum well, and, at and, all throughout the rest of the show. And indeed, Jesse Gender's video mm. actually talks about how there are certain characters in Star Trek, mm. specifically Mr. Spock and Data, mm. who have been actually appreciated by many people in the autistic community for kind of accidentally. Mm. Because they are because they have an alien experience because they're dealing with human emotion and human interactivity mm. uh, from the kind of the outside looking in, those characters have been appreciated a lot even though those were accidental representation. Oh, Something you know? I've always liked about Star Trek is they yeah. try to offer new perspectives on humanity as a whole. Yeah, uh, through the you know the science fiction perspective, but still we get a new perspective. Yeah. So uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to we've, we've thrown this out there a lot lately, yeah, keep, keep, and keep throwing them back I, at again. Us. I, yeah, I let's think re, I feel like we've asked the request. I feel like we've asked the, had this request before for uh, g- good examples of autistic representation. I'd like to focus on the good, but if there's any uh, negative ones that maybe aren't as well talked uh-huh. about, or or maybe too, so accepted that we aren't really talking about them enough as being negative, uh, feel free to write in. And we're looking particularly for people who really know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, once again, our email address is letters at critically acclaimed dot net, and our PO box is uh, PO box six four one five six five, Los Angeles, California nine double zero six four. Right, we'd love to hear from you because again, we love cinema, we love talking about this stuff, but it's important sometimes to know this is not our lane. So mm. this is yeah. we yield we yield the highway. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Anyway, next, let's yes, go to the next letter. Uh, yeah. Here is a letter from Sam. Hello, Sam. Hi, Sam. Um, Dear the Luca Show. <laughs> 
with special guest William Bibiani and musical guest Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> That's me, Rockmeister McCool. Um, yeah. where, where is Luca? Luca's, Luca's, Luca's napping the, on the Luca's bed. the cat. Luca, uh, Luca has been a little bit more, a uh, little bit more active the last couple of weeks. I think hmm. people probably heard him more yeah. often than lately. I think it, I think it was the last episode we, we recorded. Was uh, Luca was so active, like Luca was literally climbing up the door. Yeah, and we had to pause the show. It's rare that Luca is so disruptive. We yeah. just stopped the show entirely. When well, he was a kitten, cat. he was very, very active, and mm. now he's like an adult cat, and he's he's mellow to yeah. smidge. But um, anyway, here's a letter uh, that actually. Um, oh wait, I, I said Sam. Okay, here's a yeah, letter so, from Sam. Yeah, um, yeah, for Luke, the Luca yeah. show. Um, since I started listening to your podcast a few years ago, I started to watch more horror movies. Hmm. I don't like being scared, but luckily I'm not scared by most movies. I just don't like jump scares. Ah. Uh, despite this, I've still enjoyed a lot of the movies I've seen, and I've noticed that some of the people who say a horror movie is bad because it's not scary. So this leads me to my question. Do you think a horror movie needs to be scary to be good? Uh, also, I'd suggest the 2018 anime that's a Dadaist satire of anime and pop culture called Pop Team Epic for the next Council Too Soon Anime Month. It's weird, short, and entirely on Crunchyroll. Uh, your former and future alien prince tears patron Sam. Thank you, Sam. Um, I feel like Sam. I might have seen some of Pop Teen Epic, but it's the I might be confusing the name with something. Right. I have to look into it. Uh, uh, but that's a good yeah, question. Good that's question. something that I've heard a lot. Do horror movies need to be scary to be good? I have a very firm take on this, but I'm, I don't okay. care what your thoughts are. Um, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna definitively say uh, they don't need to frighten you. Mm-hmm. But they should fill you with doubt. They should fill you with dread. Uh, a, a, a good horror movie. Uh, I mean, if, if a movie kind of has a lot of jump scares in it, and uh, the uh, the It movie is a good example of this. The yeah. Conjuring movies are good. It's a lot of banging. Evil noises, Dead One and Two. Monsters yeah. lurching out of the darkness and scaring you. There's a fun to that. There's a carnival yeah. kind of atmosphere in a theater when you're seeing a good scary movie with a lot of jump scares mm-hmm. in it. And it's fun to be scared in that capacity, I yeah. think, especially where in a, a safety of a theater surrounded yeah. by a crowd and everybody's screaming. It's like a roller noise. coaster. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, but to be a good horror movie, you don't necessarily need those qualities. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But uh, all you need is some uh, good or interesting way to talk about fear, dread, doubt, and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, those are the four corners. <laughs> Fear, dread, doubt, and death. If only um, you could come up with some sort of D word that means being scared. <laughs> Der- dread, doubt, and death, and, De- and derrified. Um, I'm gonna look up synonyms. <laughs> Fear, f- 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 dread, doubt, and death are the the things that sort of create the most anxiety in humanity. Dread these are, these are sort of the 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 you know, despair. There's another D word for you. Uh, the, distress. 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 Doubt. Dread. And distress. Dread, doubt, and fear. There you go. <laughs> Is that bad? The, the four D's. Yeah. Uh, we just coined a thing. Write, write those down. I'm, so writing, I'm writing it down. Um, this is copyright. <laughs> Uh, because uh, I and we, you and I had a conversation once a while back about what the difference between a horror movie and a thriller is. And uh, horror movie horror movies are about death, whereas thrillers are about survival. It's about what you need to do to survive, and it's sort of about the actions you take. It's about rising up and surviving. Uh, horror Distress movies or doom. Doom is simpler, and it deals doom, more sure, with like doom. impending, impending doom, yeah. death. Yeah, all right. Okay, because that way everything's fear, got one fear, syllable. Fear and doom, sure. Yeah, well, because dread's kind of fear. 
So you got Doom, Dread, mm. Doubt, and Death. Okay. Those good. are the yeah. four Ds. <laughs> a good horror movie should deal with at least yeah. some of the four uh, Ds. Do those things need to frighten you? Maybe they should shake you a little bit. I think the better horror movies are going to be very intelligent and mm-hmm. maybe even a little bit dark about the way they address those concepts within your soul. Mm-hmm. They're making you face the thing that you're afraid of. And if you leave a little bit unnerved, that's going to be a lot more powerful than if a, cl- a scary clown jumped out and made you jump in your seat a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, but not every film's going for that. Not Yeah, again. again I, not every, so do horror films need to be scary? They don't need to frighten you, but they need, if they're going to be good, I think they do need to at least have you leave the theater, have you leaving the theater mm. thinking about sort of your deepest fears and mm. why you might be afraid of them. I, my take on it is this, mm. I'm a big fan of genre studies yeah, yeah. and the way that uh, one film does something well and then all of a sudden people realize, oh, here there are specific parameters we can follow to successfully do something similar. Yeah. And gradually we build a genre on top of that. And that's true for movies, music, comics, Books, whatever, anything all else. All art, too. All art, basically. However, I do believe that when you are categorizing a genre or your subgenre, quality <laughs> cannot be part of the cannot be part of the criteria mm. because quality is subjective. There need to be quantifiable. You can be able to put them on a list. Things that people who even people who don't like the movie can see. Criteria reasons. To categorize a movie as whatever the genre is. Horror, romantic comedy, family, post-apocalyptic, doesn't matter. And I think I actually think Whitney's pretty close to my point of view here. I think that a horror movie, regardless of what it does with it, because there are many funny horror movies, and they're supposed to be funny, they're not supposed to fill you with dread. There are many uh, horror movies that are more about giving you just sort of a general sense of unease, like mm. anything could happen at any time. And there's a there's something to be said for cultivating that jump scare mentality if it's done well. Uh, but uh, doing it well cannot be the criteria. No, just no, like no. just like uh, if it, oh, an, uh, action, an action movie is still an mm. action movie if it doesn't make your pulse pound. All right, you yeah, can be a is... lot of boring action movies, but are there car chases? Does the story mm. revolve around? Uh, you know, life or death set pieces and fights. That's, yeah, that's the, an action movie. That's, that's, the, that's the genre, but yeah, yeah those, that's, that's those what we're talking about. can still bore you. Exactly. So a horror movie doesn't have to be scary, and there's a million different ways to be scary. There's, uh, there's you know, uh, 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 sort of insidious, mm. you know, like gets under your skin. There's just like, oh, I feel a little nervous walking home tonight and then in front, in front, of, in front of all these dark alleys kind of thing. Mm. And then there's, <laughs> that clown killed a lot of people. And they're like, you're sort of <laughs> fine with it at the end. All of those things are fine, but fear is a subjective emotion. What scares you might not be what scares everybody else. A lot of people are scared by, for example, The Exorcist. Scared the shit out of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Just because it doesn't scare you doesn't mean it's not a good horror movie. The Exorcist still deals with a lot of distressing topics. It deals in uh, uh, demonology. It deals in the devil. It deals in children in peril. It deals with the fear of what happens when your child is ill and you don't know why and no one yeah, can tell yeah. you. It deals with the existential terror of questioning your faith or what happens when your faith is suddenly affirmed and you didn't want it to be. Mm. It deals with all of these things and we can recognize those things and we can see those things. So even if the exorcist isn't scary to you, I think it's still possible to say it's a good horror movie. Yeah, yeah. Because it's dealing with all these things in an interesting way. And you can do that in a funny way. You can do that in a shocking way. Hmm. So, no, I don't think it's necessary. But I do believe 
that the ones that do manage to scare you do tend to stick out. And as a result, <laughs> we often favor those. And we say, oh. that movie scared the shit out of me. That's the scariest movie okay. of all time. And you might want to call that the best horror movie ever made to you. Yeah. yeah but was... that, again, that's purely subjective. That doesn't necessarily have to be for everyone. When, when I was in high school and I had just seen the movie and it made me scream, which is something that movies didn't do a lot when I was mm-hmm. a teenager, was Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah. And there's a, not only does it have these weird existential philosophies in it, but there's some really good jump scares in that movie as well. What was the last movie that made you scream? Uh, it's It's been a while since I've like screamed out loud in a movie theater. I would say there was the last one that got me to go, ah! Uh-huh. Was actually, and I don't even like the movie very much, but it got me for one moment. It was actually It Chapter 2. <laughs> there's a scene where there's a kid in a park, and we're kind of close-up shot of the kid. And then right next to this kid is this giant evil lumberjack statue. Uh-huh. And it was so completely out of left field uh-huh. and so weird and I was so not expecting that shot at all mm. that it actually like Gah! what the <laughs> fuck and it was the only one it was, <laughs> it was the only a, one but it totally weirded me out there was a shot in Inland Empire uh, which is kind of a nightmare of a movie anyway it's yeah. kind of difficult to to wrap your head around because it's three hours of like seemingly unconnected vignettes yeah but there's a scene where uh, uh, the Laura Dern character is having like sort of this nightmarish vision of herself and we see this like sort of exaggerated version of her face and mm-hmm. it's just a still photograph and the camera, the lights slowly fade up on it. So it kind of like fades into existence yeah. and it's a big kind of look at, look it up on the online. It's, really it's, it's a commonly used still from the film. Actually. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really scary looking. And yeah. I was like staring at it for a minute and I got, it got sort of this reaction. It's like, ah, <laughs> like David Lynch knows how scream. to scream. It's like, it's like a slow moving scream. He knows how moment. to take a moment that yeah. in a vacuum may or may not be scary. And presented in such a way that it is fucking terrifying. Like, yeah. He just knows that. He's, like the scene in the Mulholland Drive behind the Winkies. Oh, yeah, that monster yeah, thing. Like, yeah. What's actually happening in that scene? Not a lot. Who are those characters? We don't see them Never again. Guy <laughs> just like, I just had this horrible dream, but there was a thing behind the Winkies, and they go behind the Winkies, and there's a thing there. That's nothing. They're, the delivery, the performance. Is it David Dasmalkian who's in that? He's um, like the main guy in, in that scene. I forgot the actor's name. Oh, whatever. Yeah. Like, but I, I'll look it up in a second. But like his delivery combined with the very slow camera work, mm. the very deliberate, the sound design, the sound design it, especially. That yeah. is one of the scariest scenes in movie history. Period. You can see it in a vacuum. You can see it in the context of the film. It is terrifying. It's all in the delivery. Not a lot's actually happening. But it's about his fear. Mm. It is about his terror. How, how afraid he is. Yeah. And the, everything about that scene sells it. So, anyway. So, to answer your question, it's a little complicated, but no, you don't have to be genuinely scary to be a good horror movie, because what scares us is subjective and different from person to person, mm. but we can be able to recognize a good horror movie, even if it doesn't scare us, yeah. specifically yeah. because we can't expect every single thing to scare us, even if it's well mm. done. Uh, I, I admit, I'm an easy mark when it comes to horror. Uh-huh. Not, not that I, I don't, I'm not, you know skittish i don't mm. get jump scares a lot usually if it's a jump scare happens just like take another take, take another, another shot and go yeah. ah, ha, ha, that's a good one. Oh, look you yeah. can see his spine you know i'm pretty jaded yeah. in certain Everyone's regards at me. Yeah, but when it comes to like films that are about dread or really kind of like slow moving horror or th- some sort mm-hmm. of mysterious thing that's lurking in the background and we can't talk about it or look at it those things tend to get under my skin. That's yeah. just sort of the way I'm wired. I'm always open to it. I think um, I never, mm. I never understood the mentality of some horror fans who are just like, oh, nothing scares me. Mm. Well, why are you watching at this point? Doesn't it seem like I, the I whole a, point is I to sort a, of a, access our fear? A close friend of mine is that yeah. way. He's been watching horror movies since far too early in age. He's seeing like gory movies uh-huh. at age six and, 
uh, yeah, he's he's pretty jaded, and he doesn't go to yeah. horror movies to be scared. He finds them just to be like action movies, like yeah. thrilling entertainments. My question for someone like that, and I don't, I don't, I don't want I, even if I asked you and you knew the answer, I wouldn't mm. trust it because this should be something very deeply personal. But if that's the case, where like, oh, I see a lot of horror movies and nothing scares me anymore. My follow up question is, what does scare you? Yeah, what would something's scare you? got it. You know, we're all human. There's mm-hmm. always got to be. It could be something that isn't in horror movies, like the thought of dying alone. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, confronting I've, my I've parents heard. about something bad that happened. I, or you once said one of the scary, yeah, one of the scariest movies you ever saw was Michael Haneke's Amour. Yeah, that which, scares the shit out of me yeah, because that's about end of life care. Yeah, right? that and, movie terrifies <laughs> me to this mm. day. Thinking about that movie scares me. Mm. It's not. A, it's not strictly speaking a horror movie. But I think it hits the right moments. Yeah, I think it, fact, it, 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 it technically counts. As, as Michael Haneke films go, it's actually incredibly humane. Oh, super humane. Uh, it's very sensitive. But that's one of the reasons why it hit me so hard mm. was its lack of cynicism. I mean, I would argue the ending gets a little cynical, but it's still very, very sympathetic. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's a movie that just makes me scared to grow, to get older. Mm. Like scared to. Mm. Yeah. I think we have time for one more. Okay, uh, here's a letter from James, and this goes back to uh, uh, something we were saying earlier. Mm. Uh, hey, Bibbs and Rockmeister, me, cool. A lot of E's, a lot of O's. Got it. Um, I've been a longtime Patreon member, and I have been so for several years now. Love you guys talking about movies, even the more obscure ones, because it reminds me that there are so many movies that I would never consider, and you remind me that there are gems that I still need to know about. I miss, oh, the, I miss the two shot, and hope yeah, you can bring fun. up a version of that some uh, back in some way someday. 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 Maybe, we have a lot of, someday. We have, we have a lot, lot of stuff that we're doing now. We have a lot of stuff we're doing now. We have a lot of ideas yeah. we'd like to get to, uh, but we also need to figure out the best way to do them because mm-hmm. we're overworked as is, yeah. and we really would we'd love to be more productive. Yeah, okay. You have no idea how much we'd love to be more productive. Uh, I, 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 I wish there were twice as many hours in the day. Um, oh, my God. Now, having said that, I do have to, I have to take exception and mm. also ask a question about critics mm. and the whole industry of film criticism. Okay. Uh, in particular, Ghostbusters Afterlife sits mm. at 61 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. Where the general audience uh, uh general audience at least on Rotten Tomatoes has graded at around 95%. Mm. The general consensus from critics saying that nostalgia was overwrought, the callbacks were unnecessary or egregious and that fan service is what destroyed the movie. Also hearing Whitney's take that it should have never been made is something that I take exception to and it's too simplistic of a view of why mm. it was ever made. I thought that was a little harsh to be frank, but that was your call. Uh, you know, I, uh, that's that's the voice I took and that's that's what mm-hmm. I got to stand by. Um I'm around the same age as you guys. I grew up watching Ghostbusters and I thought the first half of the movie was something new and unique and the second half was a continuation of a story that happened from the first movie and it all makes sense because I feel like it was a movie dedicated to Harold Ramis, the first movie, and our love for it. I loved the movie, because in the end, it closed the loop on the first Ghostbusters, and now we can continue on with a newer cast. Okay. Which brings me to wanting to ask, are critics down on this film and the same of its ilk because they watch so many? Hmm. Uh, this goes back to my my comments on uh, yeah. sort of the, the overuse of certain themes. Uh, I'll just ask because I feel like in general critics see so many movies that they are just looking for something that is so different from the things that they see that they bring a movie down uh, like Ghostbusters because they feel like it is just fluff and derivative. Mm. I have kids who are 10 and 12 and they loved it. Okay. I was someone who loved the first Ghostbusters and it did what I wanted it to do. There were lots of cheers in the theater I saw it in. I'm not saying that what you guys said about the movie is not valid, but I'm wondering if, in general, are watch are are you two watching so much that something that is not out of the ordinary will not at least give something like Ghostbusters a fair shake? 
Uh, I'm not saying that it was it was an awesome movie. I think it was definitely something Ghostbusters fans wanted to see, and now I feel like sequ- new other sequels can tread new ground. Mm. So sorry for the long-winded email. I'm so thankful that, for you guys and your opinion. Thank, uh, you. thank you for taking the time to read this. James in the Bay. James, thank you so much for writing in. These are valid questions that people talk about all the time. I feel mm. sometimes the conversation about them is driven by people who don't actually understand how the critical, like, the film critic job works. Mm. Uh, so let me let me let me get started on this. Um, first off, to your second big point, which is that critics see more movies than a typical moviegoer because we we make the time, mm. like it's our job or it's our passion at least. Um, and as a result, our standards can be raised a little high. Yeah. Yes, one hundred percent true. It's, it's... That's a fact. That is, however, I would argue, a selling point. And not a problem. I believe that when we go to a critic for their thoughts on a movie, if the critic doesn't have any more experience with the medium or any more deeper knowledge of the medium than we do, do why, why are we reading that critic? Mm. Like, we sh- want people to... You want an talk- expert, essentially. Well, yeah, yeah. Ex- as much as one can be. And this is why, and again, no one is an expert on everything. We've had this conversation I'll, a lot. I'll, I'll, of, I'll we've got mail. an expert. I'll just say mm. someone with... Uh, expertise. Some expertise. So, and again, your expertise in cinema can be in a million different fields. There's a mm. lot of different ways to be an expert in cinema. You can be an expert in the history, a specific genre, a specific era. Uh, you could... You should. I think every critic should have at least a general overview of film history. And that requires you to see a lot of movies that people in the mainstream audience, don't necessarily go out of their way to see and aren't necessarily thinking about as they watch a movie. And as a result, you'll get a bit more of a nuanced take from a professional critic, generally speaking. I think you should. I think it's the point. Then you will will from a general audience member. Uh, uh, And a general audience member who can write maybe a comment if they choose or just click plus or minus on Rotten Tomatoes, whereas a critic... If they're going to give a review on Rotten Tomatoes, have, have to, to actually review, have yeah. to actually justify every single thing they think about that movie. Whether or not they do it well is another is another matter, but that is the gig. Mm-hmm. A critic is supposed to have high standards, and this goes for anything. If you go to a food critic and say, "Hey, what's the best hamburger in town?" and they say McDonald's, that's either extremely damning about your town or a critic who hasn't eaten at enough restaurants. Yeah. And I think that's fair to say for cinema as well. If you ask, and we just talked about this in Empire, when mm-hmm. we talked about the Empire list. I'm not saying every movie on that Empire list was bad, but what I am saying is that when you look at that list and you just see how uh, narrowly focused mm-hmm. that list of the greatest films of all time is, it makes you question just how much the people who wrote it actually know about the history of cinema and how many movies they've really seen. Because if you've seen a lot of them, you probably are going to have a bit more nuanced take than anything that was popular in the last 20 years must be good Mm. so on that note yes that's true that is oftentimes a bit of a dividing line between critics and audiences i agree with that let let, let me reiterate the point though stemming from that that yeah it's not necessarily a critic's job to reflect popular opinion oh it's not their job at all to reflect uh, popular opinion it's, that's it's, not the gig it's our gig is to reflect it, it'd be the our own job, opinion it'd yeah. be the easiest job in the world if it was we just wait until the audience gives their audience score on rotten tomatoes and, just say, and then say it's a 90 too. yeah yeah that's that's useless hmm. you don't need us for that you don't need anyone so, for that no well, 
You don't need you don't you're not going to get any actual like insight or thought or understanding into it at all. You're just going to get a yeah, cool, the audience likes mm-hmm. it. The audience by the way, and I, this is why I don't trust the audience scores on Rotten Tomatoes. I wanted to get to this but real fast. Okay, yeah. If a critic wants to put a score up on Rotten Tomatoes, they have to put up a review. The audience doesn't. They can just click a button. They can click a button. They don't even and, need to prove that they've seen it. And, uh, and they can also, just yeah, do that. And also, and who, who is clicking the button? Uh, a, healthy cro- a healthy cross-section of everybody who's seen the movie? Is everyone or a, who's, or yeah. a certain person who has something to say? Yeah, if someone's passionate about right. it, they're going to go out of their way. But think about how many people... think there's A lot of people probably saw Ghostbusters and said, Oh, I like that. Next time I'm on Rotten Tomatoes, I'll, I'll say I liked it. You can do that. That's totally fine. That's and there. There you go. There's an upvote. Uh, but think about how many people who saw it and went eh, and never thought about it again, and as a result, never went to Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. Probably <laughs> a fair percentage of the number of people yeah, so, who would see any movie. That's yeah, not. The, 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 it's not as accurate as yeah, I would the, like it to the be. The Rotten Tomatoes uh, again. Uh, and this needs to be like reiterated time and time yeah. again. But how the way Rotten Tomatoes works, it is just an aggregate of yeah. of. How certain critics feel about it. Uh, 61% of critics who submitted reviews to Rotten Tomatoes gave it a pass. Yeah, that's not that's not a claim. That's not saying it's the greatest thing ever. It's a, it thumb, just means, it's a thumbs up. That's all it is. It means is. it's better than bad. Yeah. And if you those are your two options around tomatoes. You're better than bad or worse than good. Mm. That's it. And the, the delineating line on Rotten Tomatoes is 60%, whether uh-huh. it's a tomato or a splat. And, that, and just because, what did they say? They got 91% audience score? 95%. 95% audience score for, for Ghostbusters. Here's what that means. 95% of the people who wanted to see it so much that they paid a ticket for it uh-huh. decided to go back to Rotten Tomatoes and say... It was fine, I guess. Yeah. Maybe they loved it. Maybe they didn't. But that's all that yeah, here, that means is that it's fine, I guess. They mm-hmm. didn't. They didn't regret buying their ticket. Yeah. Here, that's a pretty low bar. Here, here's here's something that's really frustrating because this is also this is not addressing our our, our listener who wrote the letter. We're, we're sort of like going to well, we're, they, bigger ideas. They brought up here. a big can of worms. Yeah, they brought um, up a big can of worms. Yeah, but. Uh, I don't want to sort of dismiss James' opinion in any no, of no, this, no, no, because no, no, Jam- no. James has some valid points, and if you enjoyed yeah. it, I'm not going to take that away from no. you. I, I, I want you to enjoy film. I want every yeah. film to be good, yeah. and I want people to enjoy movies. I happen to not like that movie mm-hmm. for the reasons I stated. Yeah. Whitney, I, was, I actually, Whitney said some harsh things, but that, and, and that's I, just his opinion. That's my opinion, and yeah. I, I do stand by those. I think these are yeah. big problems of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and they, they rubbed me the wrong way, and yes, it's entirely possible that we as critics see so many movies that we're extra keyed into when things are derivative because we've seen it in classic movies in the past mm-hmm. done much better in the past or well, we've seen more movies uh, do it recently than someone who only exactly. sees a dozen so, movies a year this, and again this this stems to my complaint about trauma being overused as a theme some people might not feel that maybe they're not seeing the same things I am maybe they're not seeing the theme repeated mm-hmm. over and over again so my complaint is could be a little bit bit, bit misguided because it's yeah. just from my perspective, and it's always is, and and everything I say is going to be from my perspective. Uh, oh, where was I going with this? <laughs> <laughs> no, just uh, we see so many movies. Uh, what frustrates me is that you know we as critics we see a lot of movies, we key into a lot of things that are repeated, and we we often hear that when audiences who only see maybe like fifteen to twenty movies a year. They want something familiar, 
And it frustrates me because if you're only going to see 20 movies a year, surely you want them all to be different experiences, right? Well, subjective, right? <laughs> I, don't, I suppose so. Yeah. Like if, if you liked can... one thing, you want to go back and have a similar yeah, experience. There's, there's, I get that. Going, going you go to back to your favorite for... restaurant, you get a, a similar exactly. dish. We, we want comfort. Yeah. That's, something that's, yeah. that's a perfectly valid reason to go to, go it, to an art it, form. It's valid, but uh, you know, yeah. I, surely there are people who see 20 movies a year who no. do want 20 different experiences. I believe that novelty is not inherently good anymore hmm. than being derivative is inherently bad mm. it's all a matter of whether you do it well mm. and if it, we feel that they're doing it badly i don't care if it's novel or or repetitive that's all there is to that yeah um if we find it repetitive to a fault or nostalgic to a fault that's a point to make but again it's subjective and some mm. people will be really satisfied with it because again this is clearly a weaponized film this film is specifically designed to poke fans of, of ghostbusters and say hey you like this and, and, and again, yeah. and and a lot of people will because they're very reverential about it. I totally get it. I thought they went way harder than they needed to go, but I get it. I personally think that the idea that okay, we wrapped up the story and we can move on. I thought we did that after the first two movies. We could have just moved on well, now. Yeah, we tried to move that's, on. That's another frustration. We tried to move on, and people were like, a, "No, yeah. we want the old one again." So we had to go back and then revisit something that we'd well, already that, moved on from. And, and that's like modern franchise thinking, isn't yeah. it? It's like, well, we can't do it now. We'll do it in a future film. Do it now. Why? Why, why do we have to wait for a future film? Why I do we need to believe, close something and start something new? We we'll just do it now. I firmly believe that it, you know, maybe be a little clunky, but you could take the post-credit sequence from Ghostbusters Afterlife mm. and have it be the first scene in the movie and a new yeah. movie, and it would you no one would ever know that this story was missing mm. ever. But um, anyway, we got to go because uh, my computer is down to two percent. Oh well, darn. Okay. Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up real fast. Uh, sorry, that's we'd love to go on for like another hour about that because that's totally <laughs> our jam. But uh, thank you everybody for writing in. If you would like to write into a future episode, once again, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our PO box? Uh, PO box six four one five six five, Los Angeles, California nine double zero six four. Special shout out to all of our patrons. We have a lot of exclusive shows on Patreon, including shows about Star Trek. Uh, and uh, that is patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We're on Twitter at critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we are currently having this weekend a Black Friday sale over at Salt Cat Soap, our Etsy store. You can find the link on social media, Salt Cat Soap on Facebook, Salt Cat Soap on Instagram, Salt Cat Soap on Twitter, or you can just go to Etsy and look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. All of our soaps are 10% off any order of $15 or more. Uh, it's a really good deal. We've had a lot of a uh, lot of good feedback on it, and uh, we hope you enjoy the soaps. There's some really cool stuff for the holidays. Um, that is it. Thank you, everybody. We hope you're having a really nice, fun, safe holiday weekend. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Ooh, one percent. <laughs>